Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Welcome to part one of this podcast with Justin Curry, the charismatic, talented singer and main songwriter of Scottish band Delamitri. Now, before the interview starts, just a quick reminder that there are many other interviews to be heard. Please check them out. Okay, on with the interview. And did I mention that Justin is Scottish? First of all, I just want to tell you that I'm 44% English. (laughs) 44% English. 24% Irish. 18% 18% Spanish, 6% Swedish, I reckon that's Viking, and I found out this week that I'm 6% Ashkenazi Jew, which who, who originated in the Rhineland, which is where I live in Cologne, and I now have a German passport. So I just want to get this English-Scottish thing out of the way <laughs> immediately. Did you do one of those DNA ancestry things then? Yeah, I did. You should do one. I highly recommend it because because Ashkenazi Ashkenazi Jews seem to come up a lot. Yeah, well, basically, what the the history of the Ashkenazi Jew, which I only know from this week, is that in the <laughs> Middle Ages they were here, they were yeah. uh, pushed out, uh, you know, from uh, from Cologne to the east, and really right. were then in Eastern Europe, all a great swathe of Eastern Europe. So right. were um, travellers or Romani, you could call them. Right. And right. we knew that my father's father was a Romani. So that <clears throat> must have been the origination. And of course, um, uh, they were decimated during the Second World War in the, in yeah. the, the, in the camps. And um, yeah. so c- most of my relations are actually in America and I know none of them. Anyhow, that's right. my DNA. I want to get out of that. I want to go into your <laughs> history. Um, do you come from a musical family? Because I know your father uh, was a choir master for the Scottish National Orchestra. So yeah. how much music was there around you when you grew up? And what sort of influence did that have on you? Well, I was thinking about this recently because if you'd asked me this when I was in my 20s, I would have said, 
there wasn't much music. I mean, we didn't, uh, I mean, there wasn't a piano. Uh, there was a harpsichord sitting in the hall that we used to play every now and then. But I don't, there wasn't any communal music. There wasn't much singing along or stuff like that. I mean, my, it was my dad's job. So he had a study and he would be locked in that study generally not making a noise just I suppose just working on scores and things and and also my dad's job involved, seemed to involve more admin than music so he always had an office in the house uh, and with lots of office equipment and he had a secretary and you never heard any music coming out of the coming out of the office you were more likely to hear music coming out of uh, the living room with my mum playing a bit of uh, light jazz or opera or something so I never really, compared to other families, I never thought that we were particularly musical. But now looking back, yeah, I mean, we were taken to see classical concerts and operas and things when we were kids, which which we hated, you know, because they were terribly boring. But we were, we were exposed to a lot of culture, you know, a lot of, um, you know, our mum was an actor. So we, uh, by the time she had kids, She'd given up her career, but she still did quite a lot of uh, like sort of university acting and things. So we used to go and see her in plays quite a lot. So yeah, we, we were we were exposed to lots of stuff, but it didn't. None of it ever felt particularly um, familial. Uh, you know, if we, if you compared our me and my sister's upbringing to other people we knew, I mean, they were having you know they were getting the guitars out after dinner, and uh, you know they would have parties and people. Would, the neighbours and friends, parents, friends would come around and sing pop songs and things. We didn't have any of that. Yeah, although what you say, I mean, okay, there's one side which is this getting the guitars out and that's other families and so on. And that's very then, you know, a musical family. Um, hmm. But certainly there was, uh, I would imagine, there's a, a, a cult air of cultural support there. Whereas yeah. if you look at most families, and I don't know, I mean, my family's not average either, but my father was a market trader. Uh, my mother was a housewife. And, yeah. you know, that the, the music that we heard would, would be a, something like Glenn Miller or something like that that would be yeah. my mother's taste. And there wasn't an atmosphere of, there is an aspect, a cultural aspect, which is an area that you could get into within your life. Did you feel that you always had some sort of support to do something culturally in your life. Yeah, we definitely had that. So, uh, and I was the only one of the three of us that seemed to show that bent in that, you know, I formed a band when I was at school, you know, and uh, I went to a lot of gigs when I was quite young. So, yes, I was definitely encouraged, especially by Barbara, our mother, uh, I mean, our dad wasn't around much. He was he was away a lot, uh, working. Um, but yes, there there was no certainly no discouragement from from our father, and and I got I got lots of encouragement from from my mum. I, I, I used to discuss. I would come home from school really upset because somebody in my band had shown a lack of commitment, and uh, but mum would talk me through it. You know the sort of pains of of artistic collaboration and all that sort of stuff. How old were you? So yeah, time? that was. What was that? How old were you? Uh, I mean, this is when, probably when I was 14 or something like that. 13 or four, 14, I would say. Yeah, probably the band probably got together when I was 14. I think so you were taking right. it pretty seriously early on, really, if you were oh, I mean, really, with your mother. <laughs> I was a very serious young man. 
yeah, really, really seriously. I mean, I, I as soon as punk rock sort of showed me the way and uh, that you didn't have to be a virtuoso of anything, you could just grab an instrument and start expressing yourself. And if you had any any kind of originality, then you could probably get a gig. And if you had any sort of drive, you could probably get a gig. So as soon as I found that way of doing things, uh, I was completely, completely obsessed by it. You know, what was the what was the thrill? When was your first gig, and what was the thrill of doing that? Even if it was a school gig or whatever it was, what yeah. what did it mean to you actually to be on stage and to be the focus uh, of attention and to be able to play the music that you wanted to play? Well, the, the first the first gig we did was organised by our drummer Paul Tiagi, uh, and we only found out a few days before that, in fact. We just thought it was a sort of local disco at his, his town hall. He lived in a place called Bears Den, which is a kind of suburb on the edge of Glasgow. Uh, and anyway, he booked his, this gig, uh, a headline gig at the Bears Den Borough Hall, which is quite a big venue, but probably holds about 800 people or something. Um, but then he informed us a few days before that it was actually a benefit for the, lo- for the local Liberal Party. It's just like, who couldn't be less cool if we tried? I suppose it could have been the Conservative Party. It could have been slightly worse, uh, which I was absolutely furious about. But by that point, it was too late. But it turned out to be a really good gig. It was just a bunch of, uh, it was just a bunch of sort of 15-year-olds and uh, and maybe some 20-somethings. Um, and we were, we must have been absolutely horrendous. But I remember, I, was, I remember loving it because the room was full and... I suppose because it was a political benefit, they all they just kind of nodded their heads and and patronised us. So it was a quite a quite a forgiving baptism. What was it like musically? Oh, uh, it would, we'd have done one cover. We, we'd have done "Tired of Waiting" by the Kinks. I think that was the first cover we did. But the rest of it was just all very monotonous little guitar riffs and some very odd lyrics thrown over the top. You wouldn't say it was even melodic. It would have just not atonal, but uh, not melodic either. I tend to just me and the, the other guitar player that wrote the lyrics. We tended just to sing one note through everything, and the guitars didn't do much much different either. God knows what it sounded like. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. We went from that to becoming postcard copyists very quickly. We, we, we got really obsessed by Orange Juice and Joseph Key. Um, and we, I actually discovered some footage of a very, very early Delamitri from when we were, you know, like 15, 16. Uh, and it's horrendous because we're just aping the wee sort of moves of Orange Juice and Joseph Key, it's incredibly embarrassing. You know, they were obviously we're desperately in love with these men that are five or six years older than us, and we kind of worship them, and we're just completely copying them. What about your love of words? Because you're, you know, one of the things that has really been an identification factor uh, of your music is your lyrics. And... I just wonder whether at school there were particular books you read or particular things that you liked, which have always stayed with you and you love the phrasing of, of in these books or you love something about them, or this is something that came up later. 
Yeah, I, well, the lyrics, the, the, the might, there might have been books. I mean, I did read books. <laughs> uh, and it was English was English and art were the only subjects I could cope with at, at school that I, I didn't find incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I read Sylvia Plath quite early, and I think that was probably quite a big influence. But I, I read Sylvia Plath because we had the books in the, in the house. And Sylvia Plath's quite accessible when you're a teenager because it's very, it's incredibly angst-ridden um, and, and it, it really appeals. I mean, obviously, things like Catcher in the Rye. And, um, uh, me, me and my sisters read quite a lot of Ted Hughes as well. That those books were hanging around. Um, but mainly the, the, the impetus to write lyrics was just turning on the John Peel show and hearing bands sing about things that you, you wouldn't expect rock bands to sing about, you know, singing about, I don't know, being on the dole or singing about sing, writing love songs in quirky, new, original ways, um, writing political songs. You know, the, the punk and post-punk and new wave, uh, lyrically everything got kind of blown wide open. I mean, prior to that, it was all glam rock and prog rock in, in my world and the, the, the lyrics in prog rock are just really awful they're incredibly obscure and uh, very hard to relate to they tend to mainly involve sort of dragons and pirates and things so um, again just just listening to punk rock really allowed you to think oh I, I could do this you know I could write a, a daft love song I mean what you mentioned you know the first gig and, the, and it was uh, a liberal party benefit and also you've also sort of just mentioned some sort of political awareness that you had at that yeah. time that we're roughly the same age and yeah. the late 70s and and early 80s um I saw them as a really shit period in musical terms they were fantastic in political and social terms there was this yeah. massive upheaval so I was you know I was down south I was in a town called Chelmsford which is north of London and I moved to London in my early 20s and um, the world seemed horrendous at that time with yeah. misogyny, racism, homophobia, you name it. It was, it was all there. What was, what was your world like in, in those terms? Did you find that you were sort of, that music provided an escape for you even in those early days from the wider world? Or was it a way to see the wider world? It was definitely, it definitely was a way to see the wider world. I, the, the escape narrative isn't true of a band like Delamitri who, who are uh, firmly middle class, you know, and uh, I came from an incredibly privileged background in that I had a very, very understanding parents, uh, went to a very sort of, uh, not a private school, but, but to all intents and purposes, it may as well have been a private school. I had a private school ethos. I mean, it wasn't fee paying, but it, it may as well have been. It was a fucking hideous place. Uh, but yeah, but not not in any way school of hard knocks or or rough. Um, so it, there was no, you know, I, I, my life's trajectory was going to be go to university, do an arts degree, and I don't know, I fucking knows what what the trajectory was after that. But certainly go to university for three or four years, um, and. The, what, the, what the music thing did was just completely change that direction. And uh, the, fun, fun enough, you know, you're talking about this sort of political culture at the time, 
you've got that kind of really sort of entrenched late 70s, unreconstructed sexism and racism, as you're saying. And then you had the Thatcher Revolution, which created a sort of, in, in my world, created a, a, a sort of mild, uh, disdainful form of protest, but not real protest. There wasn't real anger uh, in, in the, the, the way that there was, you know, during the minor strike or something. The Thatcher Revolution, uh, we sort of sneered at it. We, we, we did absolutely fuck all about it. Uh, but because of the... Uh, because of Thatcher's um, sort of drive to make everybody an, an entrepreneur, there were schemes available that meant you could leave school and um, sign on to a, like a, a yacht scheme or something and get a bit of money every week that would pay for rehearsals. So, so, so the, ironically, and I know Alan McGee from Creation said this, ironically, the, Thatcher, the early period of the Thatcher government was really beneficial to people like us that wanted to go arty and wanted to go and just sign on and uh, not be hassled into some shitty job and just rehearse as much much as we could. And effectively, that's what that was the kind of making of us. And that um, you know we could sign on uh, and rehearse cheaply and rehearse like six days a week, you know. And that was really where we learned our stuff after I'd left school and and. Uh, once it was kind of out in the world. There seems to be quite a long period until the, the, the first album um, was released um, and that you were together as a band. So there's, you know, there's this long lead up to it. In that period, and uh, I presume uh, you were listening to lots of indie bands in that period yeah. and, and following those, what... What did, who did you want to be musically at that point as a band? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Well, we started off, once Ian joined the band in 82, prior to that, we were just, we just wanted to be Orange Juice and Joseph Key. That was it. Uh, and then once Ian joined, we tried to be a cross between television and Captain Beefheart. We didn't sound like that at all, but that's what we were aiming for in terms of the guitar arrangements. We wanted, we didn't want any chords. We wanted all the guitars to be single lines or maybe arpeggiated lines. We wanted to sort of fit those together with very melodic bass and quite strange drums. We were really obsessed with the first Feelies album as well. That was a big influence. Well, they, they did use a lot of chords, unlike, um, unlike Captain Beefheart. 
but yeah, we were, we were obsessed by Beef Art, the Feelies television, uh, and uh, and obsessed with writing songs in a collective way, writing songs with all four members con- uh, contributing. Was so, that difficult then? Was that difficult to do that? Yeah, that, that was really. That was really hard. I mean, that, as I say, that's why we were rehearsing five or six days a week. We, you know, we rehearsed like six, seven, eight hours a day. It was nuts, and. I mean, I, I suppose I was kind of the ringmaster in that I w- we would come in and I would say, I would just point at one of the guitar players and say, just play something, you know, every day. So there was a lot of kind of jamming around little loops of figure, guitar figures. And then we would try and mash things together. Oh, that doesn't work. That's the wrong key. Oh, that doesn't work. It's the wrong tempo. And eventually we'd find all these bits that we'd worked on and come, come up with parts for based on something that somebody, that one of the guitar players had played. We would sort of fit those together, make some kind of structure that I would record on cassette, and then I would take that home and write a bunch of words over the top and then come back in and maybe dick around a bit with the structure, but not much. But that literally took two or three months per song, you know. Uh, It was an incredibly labour-intensive way of doing things. I mean, the end result was we got the, the first album... I listen to it now, and in spite of lots of things, I'm very embarrassing about it. Musically, it's it's very dense and complicated, and it's I think it's quite original, you know, in its own way, um, because it's not. It really is constructed in quite an arty way. It's uh, it's kind of a patchwork thing, um, and it, eventually that became so painful and time consuming that Ian suggested that we that we tried writing different, in a different way and he just said, look, why don't we just write things separately? Uh, and that was that ended up being a big change in what, what we did. You know. What was your expectation of that album? That was on Chrysalis, I think, wasn't it? The yeah. first album? Yeah. yeah. So w- w- when you got that signed, there must have been a sort of particular expectation about how this is going to go. What, what was your expectation and how well, did that pan out? Well, we were... We had very low expectations commercially because we were signed to an indie offshoot of Christus called Big Star. Uh, you know, one of these pseudo-indie labels that all the major labels uh, launched in the early 80s. Uh, so, and we, we, we weren't given a huge amount of money. We were given 25,000 quid, uh, which was enough to, to put us on wages, you know, to, you know, allowed us to go full-time, allowed us to buy a bit of gear. Um, and it would, you know, that money probably lasted just like a year and a half or something. Um, but there was no commercial pressure from Christus because we were on this indie label. I guess the expectation from the label was, oh, maybe they'll get into the indie chart and one of the singles will be in the top 10 of the indie singles chart or something, or maybe they'll get a good review. Um, but this rather odd thing happened when we, after we signed to Christus, we were just getting on with making the first album. We were we were quite well thought of in the weekly music press, you know, the enemy melody maker and sounds covered us favorably because we were part of that post postcard scene, you know, and we were getting better. We were starting to do some quite interesting things, I think. But then what happened was our manager managed to get the attention of the editor of melody maker, a guy called Ian Pye, um, to, get interested in what we were doing at Christmas. So she sent him three, the first three songs that we'd recorded. They were unmixed, I remember. They'd be recorded for the first album. So she sent Ian Pye these 
songs and he went ape shit about them and then kind of off his own back put us on the cover of melody maker before we released anything we'd put we'd, we'd released one indie single like a year and a half before or something or a year before so all of a sudden we were being touted by the melody maker as the future of you know of british indie pop uh and that, the, so then what happened was that the the uh, the a r department at chrysalis phoned up the press department and said who's this band delimitri we should sign them and uh, the press department said you signed them six months ago uh so the so then what happened was the A and R department started putting us under pressure because prior to that we were just on this little indie offshoot of Christmas and nobody really nobody knew what the hell we were up to because we weren't spending very much money. So we were just we, we were flying under the radar. But as soon as this melody maker cover happened, um, the record company got extremely nervous and thought, oh, we've got we've we've got this precious hip property that they didn't know what to deal with. So then they hummed and hawed about putting the first single out. And then they decided that we should wait until we'd finished the album. Anyway, so we, we ended up not releasing anything for, for like six months or something, by which time there'd been a huge backlash because the other music papers, uh, who to a certain extent were more influential, actually, Sounds in the Enemy, thought, well, who the fuck are these guys? You know, they've, they, they put one single, they, they, the Melody Maker put them in the cover with a centre spread article, and then uh, they never put anything out. This, this, is, this is just fucking hype. Um, so by the time the album came out, we were... We, absolutely savaged by the sounds and, and the enemy um so that was really that was game over because we were uh, as you know you were asking about expectations there were no commercial expectations for that record it just had to get good reviews and then we would have done another record and then maybe we could have built an audience and you know we played some universities and we could have maybe yeah we could have got slightly bigger or reached a slightly wider audience but without any hullabaloo or, or commercial pressure um, so yes, it was fucked. It was totally fucked. It, 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 fucked by the fact that our, our record company just made a complete, a complete arse of it, you know. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. But I mean, Chrysalis were just one of they were. Even though they were a small major, they were just hideous in those in the eighties. They were the Spandau Ballet record label. There was a lot of cocaine going on. There was a lot of, you know, A and R guys getting on planes to Glasgow with, you know, somebody in the office they were having an affair with and spending shitloads of money to, you know, to sign, you know ostensibly hit bands from the town that produced postcard and it was it was a it was a really horrible culture it was uh uh it was the antithesis of everything we were about you know it, it was kind of glam and uh and hedonistic and uh, you know it, it just wasn't for us at all we were this little these little middle class socialists who were trying to do something you know, original and, and and deeply indie, and it, it just it was the wrong label for that. And when they finally decided to pull the plug on the on the contract, you were in America, yeah. weren't you? How did that feel at that time? And um, no, we weren't in America. We were uh, we we actually tried to get them to drop us because they they took up the option on the second album we, we, to our great surprise because we, obviously the whole thing had been a huge commercial and critical failure. Or not, not even a huge failure, just a failure. Uh, 
But then for some weird reason, they took up the second option. I think because we were, it was cheap to do, uh, they only had to pay us like, a, a small amount of money to keep us on the label. And then we realised that they were going to sit on us and force us to write pop songs, uh, which we couldn't do and weren't willing to do. Uh, and we were, so we realised that we were going to get into one of these awful traps that happens to an awful lot of bands where they're still signed to the label, but the label won't let them record because they're not writing sufficiently uh, commercial material. So the label won't spend any money in the recording studio on the, on the artist, which should be illegal, but it's, to, I think to this day, it's not illegal. So we, um, our manager and us sort of stays to kind of sit in, in the offices and we print up these t-shirts saying, release the devils uh, to try and force to force them to drop us because we, we because we couldn't work you know we couldn't uh, they wouldn't give us any money to do anything because they, they um considered what we we're doing uncommercial so we tried to compromise and we wrote a sort of pop song called tears and trickery and then they said oh that's quite good write us another three of those and and we said no we're not doing that um fuck off so yes we got into this big sort of battle with christmas and then eventually they dropped us i think maybe spring 86 so it was actually after that that we went to America um, with our sort of last couple of thousand quid, which we spent on airfares. So, um, yeah, that was how that happened. What was the plan with going to America then? If you were at that point, you know, you're at that point, you haven't got a label, you've got yourself out in some way, and you're going off to America with limited money. <laughs> what, well, well, we had no goal? money. <laughs> we had no money. We, we, had, we had two grand in the bank, which we spent on airfares. This, it was a big plan by Barbara Shores, our manager, who's an American woman who'd moved to the UK to uh, make a postcard fanzine. She was obsessed with postcards, as a lot of Californians were in the, the early 80s. Um, but she always had this dream of taking like a Scottish band to, to America and showing, showing them America, which is what she did. Uh, so the plan was spend the last money we had on airfares do a private party um, in New Jersey um, that was being put on by a big fan called Tim Haland, I think. Um, and that was going to raise a couple of thousand dollars, which would allow us to buy a van. And then we were going to go around staying in fans, in most cases, parents' houses, where they would put gigs on for us either in their aunt's house or in a record shop or in a local club that they'd hired. Um, because in the intervening years we've been writing to all these fans and kind of grooming them to help us. You know, we, you know, we would. Can you put? Can, could you put a gig on for us? Oh yeah, I'm having a twenty-first birthday party. Yeah, I'll I'll rent a club in in Orlando and we'll sell tickets and we'll give you the money. So that, that's how that worked. And it was it was budgeted and it was it sort of depended on selling quite a lot of badges and t-shirts and busking was quite a big part of it. Um, so what happened when we got to the States was the guy who was having the private party who said he was going to sell 200 tickets at 20 bucks a head, he effectively had a nervous breakdown, partly because there was 10 of us sleeping on his living room floor in a small apartment in Jersey Heights. That didn't help. Uh, but he hadn't sold the tickets that he claimed that he'd sold. So he didn't have any money for us. We, he just had a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, so then we had to start phoning other fans that we've been in touch with, saying, could they lend us stuff? 
because we were going to hire equipment. We had to borrow all the equipment before we went on the road. We borrowed a van from a commercial van hire place that was run by a Mancunian guy in, again in New Jersey. It, it was just insane. The whole thing was absolutely insane. Um, but how formative uh, was that musically? And also, um, yeah, as you know, as people, because... You know, when you travel to another country and when you get that sort of experience, you, you do change. It changes you, especially at yeah. a young age. And also, um, you had this musical experience and yeah. you're then presumably more open to what's culturally going on in another country. So yeah. I just wondered how that changed you yeah. in both those areas. It, it was completely formative. Um, it was our backpacking year out, you know. Um, it was formative in the sense that it was extremely stressful psychologically because we were hungry all the time uh we were we weren't getting enough sleep because we were just pulling over and sleeping in picnic rest areas because we didn't have money for any accommodation at all um we would get fed and watered when we were in a town where a fan was putting on a gig for us so you know the parents would open the very generously and hospitably open the frigidaires to us um so formative and and in that sense it was kind of miraculous that we, we got around the whole circuit musically it was a huge change because american audiences are wildly different from european audiences and everything is a lot more showbiz you know everything's about performance and uh and sort of showing off and we learned really quickly to to respond to that because american audiences teach you that you know they, they they're, they're very they're extremely vocal they'll tell you what bits they like and then you just play up to that, and it becomes quite uh, histrionic, you know. Um, and but that's fun. That's really great fun. So it, it changes in that six week tour. We, we went from being a very earnest, slightly shoegazy indie post postcard band to being to being a rock band, you know, um, with guitar solos. I mean, we didn't realise that we had guitar solos until these guys would go oh and start clapping and on part two of this podcast justin talks more about that crucial formative period in the states and about the band's successes including their latest album recorded after a long hiatus see you soon Save on auto insurance for driving safe with USAA SafePilot. You'll feel like a big deal. Even in a traffic jam. Save up to 30% with USAA SafePilot. Restrictions apply. 